Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Tish Oxenrider is a writer, a teacher, a podcaster, and a literary tour guide. I'm not speaking figuratively, by the way. When there's no pandemic afoot, Tish literally takes people on literary tours of London. Her podcast, The Good List, is so good it should probably be called The Great List. Tish Oxenrider's new book, Shadow and Light, is a guide to a quieter, gentler Advent season. Tish Oxenrider, thanks so much for being on the Habit Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It is a pleasure to have you here because I love so many of the things you do. Um, and I wanted I want to hear about, so after I think 12 years, you are ending your Art of Simple blog at the end of this year? Yeah. Yeah. It was a decision that doesn't come lightly, but it's been a long time coming. I've actually wanted to, well, maybe hindsight being 2020, I think I've wanted to, to end it well for about two years now, but yeah, this is the official final year. And of course I'd never planned 2020 to be what 2020 is. Yeah, right. Nonetheless, it's, it's the year we're wrapping things up. Yeah. Yeah. And can you tell me more about that? How you said, okay, I think I'm done with this, <laughs> this blog that people like. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, because of that, I wanted to end things while things were going well. You know how mm-hmm. sometimes you watch these TV shows and you're like, hmm, that should have ended two seasons ago. Yeah. I didn't want to run into that situation. But um, I started the blog on a whim, which is I know what a lot of people do. But this was back in 2007 when mm-hmm. blogs were, had already been around, but the, they were really taking off. And I had started it while we were living overseas cross-culturally in Turkey. And it was at the suggestion of a therapist by way of then my husband, long story. And long story short, it took off and I wasn't really expecting that. So it became a happy accident where it really helped me thrive as a writer and find my audience, find my voice, all those good things. Um, but then fast forward, you know, it's been 12 years now. This is an, it's in its 12th year. And except for the first year, I always had other people writing. So it was both a place where I could kind of chronicle my thoughts, but also share space for other people. And I loved that part of it. Um, But at some point I just started realizing, and I don't know if you've ever had this, where there's a certain topic you enjoy, you will never not like thinking and talking about it, but it it also just feels like at some point you've said what you need to say and almost like Mm -hmm. the grace for that topic has run out in your life and you're just (laughs) ready to move on to something else. So this is my maybe long-winded way of saying the only main reason is I just wanted to end it well. And because I, I feel like I've said what I need to say about the things we dived into on AOS. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, um, I guess, have you heard from a lot of people? I'm sure you have uh, sadness about. Yeah, I think so. It, it, it's a mix of things. It's it's sadness, like oh gosh, yours was the was the first blog I ever read, or you know, it's been really great hearing from some people saying, "I feel like I grew up with your blog," and in some ways, I did too. You know, I started it when my daughter, my oldest, was almost three, and she's now almost sixteen. So you mm-hmm. know, those are pivotal years, and so that's really fun to think that I was this you know, little website played a small part in people's life. But I've also heard from just as many people saying, yeah, that makes sense. It's a good time. And I think part of it is because I'm not necessarily going away, you know, from the public sphere. I'm still podcasting. I'm still writing. It's giving me more bandwidth to really focus on my newsletter and books, which is where where I really want to channel my energy. So I think it's mostly 
you know, well received by the longtime readers. Yeah. Um, tell me about movies. You, you said you want to focus more on your newsletter. How, how's that? How do you, how's your newsletter different from, from the blog? Why, why, like, what's the distinction there? Well, you know, if you, I, I've been writing a weekly newsletter for quite a while now, several years. And I started realizing you know, I did it at first at the insistence of probably a, a publisher or an editor or somebody saying, this is what people do yeah. now. Um, yeah. And then it turned out to be something I really, truly enjoyed. And there was a little bit of that, um, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say sacred space because it is still an email inbox, but there's something to be said <laughs> about somebody purposely saying, yes, I want to hear from you. And then when they open your inbox, it's in a private area. It's not out for the world to see. And so it's people definitely giving me permission to interact with them. And so it becomes a place where people who really want to hear from me can hear from me instead of a drive-by um, commenter. But the other reason is because of what I mentioned about the blog that except for that first year, it had always been a community space, which I actually really loved about it. But the newsletter almost became full circle, a personal blog for me again. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it moved locations. It's now on Substack, which you might have seen because I think it's really taken off this year. And Substack provides a way for people to connect with their um, readers in a much more simplified way than, say, someplace like Patreon, where I used to be. Uh -huh. And so the newsletter just becomes a place for me to kind of get back to the original, I guess, nuts and bolts of writing and experimenting and playing with thoughts and words with people that want to hear from me. Yeah. Yeah. I... Um... I, I I have found with the newsletter that the the mere fact that somebody has said yes, I want to hear from you, makes a difference in, in the way I think about it, and mm -hmm. it also makes me uh, a little more. What's the word? I mean, it, it, I haven't missed any deadlines on the newsletter. I've missed deadlines on every other thing I've ever written in my whole life. Right. But the newsletter is like these are people who want to want to hear from me, and and. Um, it's it's been strange that that even more than getting paid for to write something, I, I always miss the well, maybe I shouldn't say always, but I often miss the deadline on anything along those lines. But but there's something relational about a um, a newsletter that that I just never, uh, yeah. I really value that. Yeah. I, I was actually going to use that exact word relational. And I think that's why, you know, it's kind of like meeting a, a friend for coffee, unless you have, you know, car trouble in the way or some health emergency, you're probably going to go um, yeah. if you have prearranged a coffee, you know, time and place. And so it feels like that to me, uh, you know, it feels less like when you're on a blog or even a podcast, you're going on stage and just kind of talking to the masses and the more people that hear the merrier. This is a lot more of like, no, we're going to sit and talk with each other in a way, even if I'm the one doing the writing and, you know, Substack is great because they allow comments uh, for the people who have subscribed. So it is a little bit more symbiotic, uh -huh. but yeah, I, I think uh -huh. that is what, what a newsletter is like. It's much more relational. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like uh, having a coffee date where you do all the talking though. Yeah, in a way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it is exhausting, but <laughs> It still feels much more intimate and personal and real. Yeah. 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 Well, I also wanted to talk about a, a recent podcast ep episode of yours in, in The Good List. And this is the, the episode. I don't know if it was your most recent one, but it's where you talk about loving your creators, lo mm -hmm. loving, you know, sort of. Uh, I just found that a, a really helpful, um, a helpful episode. So um, let's talk about that a little bit. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, just like kind of a little bit like the Substack thing. I think so many of us are surprised, mostly just because we forget that um, these people whose work we get to enjoy largely for free, thanks to the internet, um, isn't free to create. And I think we forget that a lot because, you know, we're, we're used to easy onboarding of things like social media. You know, anyone can open a Twitter account or anyone can start a blog. And by and large, those things are low barriers of entry. It doesn't cost money to do those. However, it does cost time, which can equate to certain people's, you know, need to make money, all those things, yada, yada. And I think some people just end up not realizing how much time and creative energy these projects take that we love. And so for me, writing that episode, recording that episode was a lot about, I mean, it was a labor of love, but it was a lot about me thinking about my own work shift, you know, like Mm -hmm. when I was writing a blog on the art of simple for those 12 years, I saw a massive shift in how people made money online where it used to be largely you know, just ads in the sidebar and that's how you made your money blogging and, or some kind of sponsored post. And, and while I haven't done those kinds of things in years and I've seen the advertising money go way down, I think um, we just forget that even when you see ads, that doesn't mean creators are compensated. You know, we, we do spend $5 on a magazine at the grocery checkout mm-hmm. line. Even if there are ads in there, we do, pay a monthly fee for Netflix and Hulu. And while commercials are annoying, we endure them because we understand what they're there for. So it's just, to me, it's a helpful reminder that if we want the internet to be a place of goodness, of truth, beauty, and goodness, and we want to continue enjoying the things we want to enjoy, we need to think about what's a little bit behind the curtain sometimes more than we do. And so that to me was, was the message behind that episode. Yeah, well, I I have in the um, in the last year have have gotten a little more serious about subscribing to you know the, even as you said even though you can get th- this stuff for free a lot of it there there are ways to um, to support as you said to make sure these things stay around and and to, to make sure that that um, that the that the markets don't completely determine you know a race to the bottom. That's right. Um, on the that's internet. right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. If I think about, you know, that I'm willing without thinking about it to give Netflix $12 a month, I, you know, even if it costs more per, you know, output, if I pay $5 a month to one of my favorite podcasters so that she can keep doing what she does, um, you know, yeah. it, it's worth it. And of course, we can't all do um, all the money that we would want for all the <laughs> things. But if some of us do a little bit, then it, it helps the internet stay the internet that we do want it to be. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, the, the saying, um, if you don't, how's it go? But basically if, if you don't, if you're getting it for free, you're the product. Yes, that's right. That's right. You're the data. Um, uh huh. And, and I, yeah. I really do believe that. And I've seen that to be true in the case of, of things like social media and, and all those resources that we enjoy for free we forget <laughs> um, that it's not like those just magically appear. Yeah. Things have to make money yeah. in our society somehow. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You're talking about the, you're talking about the, the low barrier of entry for Twitter or, or you know, making a, a blog or, or whatever. Uh, I always think about the, this, those episodes in uh, the great divorce 
where, you know, because you can just think a house, because because there's no friction that's keeping you from making a new house, everybody kind of, you know, spreads out and, and leaves a donut in the middle because, you know, it, it's too easy to, the lack of friction makes it, makes it too easy to, to pick up and go somewhere mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and that's always, um, you know, that the, the, the frictionlessness of the internet is a big part of the problem with the internet, internet, mm-hmm. you know, that it's so easy. You, you don't have to think, uh, if you're a spammer, you know, you don't have to calculate postage. <laughs> right, right, right. It's it's, it's far too easy in some ways. And I think that's probably why, you know, we're seeing things come full circle where so many of us are craving more analog life, more offline life, you know, where we just only have a max capacity for certain things and, and certain amounts of screen time. And I think that speaks to that. It's just too easy. You know, there, there's not enough um, digging your fingernails in the dirt on the internet. Um, because yeah. it's too accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then Google, I mean, the, the great thing about Google is you go straight to what you're looking for. And the bad thing about Google is you go straight to what you're looking for. That's you right. Know, half of my education was walking through the stacks on my way to the book I was really looking for mm-hmm. and then picking up the books that I didn't know I, I needed, you know, on the way. Yeah. And it, it makes me, it makes me sad to, to be able to go straight to what I'm looking for. Yeah. I've told, you know, I teach high schoolers and I've told them before, you know, when we were kids, we did not, we had to just sit with not knowing an answer to a question many times, <laughs> or, you know, we had to wait until we could get to the library or read the newspaper to find the answer to our questions. And now it's on your back pocket. And yeah, there's something nice about that, but there's also something that's it actually affects our brains. I think, you know, where we're not comfortable with, with just ambiguity or just sitting there or just resting with our thoughts and, and letting them try and figure things out on their own. So one of my assignments I give to my students once a month is go on a walk without your screen or without your phone uh-huh. for one hour, plan ahead with your parents. So you're safe and just listen to your thoughts. And it's amazing. Something that simple, they've commented on how hard it is. So I think it's, it's good for all of us to remember that. Yeah. Um, they say it's, they comment on how hard it is and what comes out of it. Well, I, you know, I give them different sort of response exercises. Some of it is um, notice, you know, use your five senses and notice one item out in the world, you know, that's made, you know, from the natural world and really notice it, like super focus on it. And then we'll do, you know, I'm an English teacher, so we might do Mm -hmm. something about, you know, poetry or whatever, but it's honestly like my end game for these kids is to remember how to think because um, I want them to go out into the adult world, not so attached to their phones that they wouldn't know what to do without one. Um, Even if that, you know, they would always have one because I mean, I've just been reading all the science about how our brains are really being affected by, um, you know, these phones are more powerful than what the NASA computers that sent the first man on the moon. And here we are walking around and with them in our pockets <laughs> and yeah. we just forget that we're, we're not robots and we, we can live without machines for an hour a day. And so, yeah, that's the point yeah. behind that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it, it's as if we're externalizing our, you know, our, our phones do become a, a, uh, an external hard drive really, in, instead of a, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, Anyway, yeah, moving right. on. Oh, I know. I mean, trust me. I, I know, we're going yeah. to be yelling at kids to get off our lawns in a minute here. I, so exa- that's what I tell my husband. I feel like I'm that meme of get off my lawn anytime I get to talking about screens. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. 
as we look at each other on a screen. Right. I know. I know. See, there are good things about it. So it's not all bad. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. So we are talking before Advent, but, but um, this uh, episode will be airing at the beginning of Advent. um, And you have a new Advent book called Shadow and Light. Yeah. Um, so give us a little bit of background. I, I think a lot of my listeners probably, uh, you know, understand the liturgical calendar, but, but probably not. I'm, I'm sure not everybody does. So let's talk about, yeah. let's talk about Advent. Yeah. I mean, I didn't grow up in a liturgical setting, you know, a church environment, I should say. And so I, I was not introduced to it till I was an adult and, and already mm-hmm. a parent, although I had heard of Advent and I think most of us probably had, but we associate it with those little calendars, you know, the countdown mm-hmm. things that you can buy at the grocery store. And that's about all I had known about it. Um, and I, it, it all started when my oldest was, you know, about first grade or so, and I wanted to make the holiday season more meaningful And so I thought some kind of countdown to Christmas would be good. And, you know, of course, this is like what we were just talking about. I could Google any sort of ideas. And um, so I found no shortage of brilliant ideas on places like Pinterest about how to create, you know, meaningful activities once a day for uh, leading up to Christmas. And, you know, to kind of cut to the chase, I realized how that wasn't going to work because I was going to burn out, you know, by December like 12th, I was done because I did not want, I I couldn't handle every single day being magical um, because (laughs) I I have dinner to cook and, and, you know, (laughs) jobs to do. So uh, that's when I started reading a little bit more into, okay, what is Advent? And when I read about the history of it and how the, the global church had been recognizing it for centuries and what it meant, I, I started incorporating a little bit more of, you know, scripture reading and, and some form of like a Jesse tree, which is, I don't know if it's still popular, but I know when my kids were younger, that was really becoming popular. But I found myself still exhausted from it because it felt like I had to um, build on top of each other every single day some form of um, meaningful devotional discussion or rich uh, conversation. And that if we missed a day, you know, like we had some kind of holiday party to go to, or there was, you know, some sort of event where the kids needed to get to bed and they were tired. And before I knew it, you know, we were like four or five days behind mm-hmm. and it just felt stressful because it's like, all right, to get caught up, we're going to have to read for an hour and a half kids and you're going to like it, even though, even though you're miserable. And um, so I wanted something that worked for a regular family yet was still really rich in tradition and meaning and really reflected the true origin of Advent and what it is we are actually anticipating kind of that already not yet Mm -hmm. idea, which I can talk about more in a minute, but Ultimately, Shadow and Light came from this place of creating something that I wanted as a mom who, you know, I now have slightly older kids, um, but could be used with, you know, when my kids were younger or could be used with somebody by themselves because it's simple and yet it relies almost exclusively on scripture. So I am giving space for God to speak through people, how um, God wants to most through, you know, the word. and incorporating also 
music and art and, you know, the goodness and beauty that comes with that, because we have no shortage of that for the holidays. But ultimately, I wanted to reorient my own family's um, compass toward actual Advent and not just a happy, clappy countdown, you know, with with cotton ball crafts and lots of movies and stuff. Um, although that's not bad. It just, I, you know, I kind of realized that's not the sort of mom I was. So that, that's in uh-huh. a nutshell, how the origin story of the book. Uh-huh. Um, and okay. So let's talk about Advent as, as a season. I mean, you know, the, how it's different from a happy clappy countdown. Yeah. You know, so the origin of Advent, well, it's actually the new year of the liturgical calendar. You know, it starts the four Sundays before Christmas day. And so that means it changes every year this year. It's on November 29th, 2020, but you know, it's always the four Sundays before, and it's sort of the liturgical calendar's new year. And the purpose of it is anticipation. It's waiting. And there's, it's not just waiting with giddy excitement. There's also a certain sense of waiting and recognition that it sometimes is called a mini Lent, but it's not so much a, there is penitence involved, but it's much more about waiting for, um, God to right all the wrongs that we see in this world. You know, like I had mentioned earlier, we have, we're, we're recognizing the already not yet season of Advent. So we do remember the historic birth of Christ that did happen 2000 plus years ago. So we're recognizing an event that did happen where Christ um, came and God became man. Yet at the same time, we're in that middle where we're still waiting on the world to be renewed and for um, all things to be made new and for us to uh, live in a world that makes sense because um, wrongs have been righted. We're not there yet. And 2020 Mm -hmm. is a year among... (laughs) unlike many others where we remember that in terms of, I mean, everything we can look around and see. And so it's a year of, uh, or it's a season of remembering that and not avoiding that, you know, it's, it's a season where we don't try to push away all the realness of the world, the the hard Mm -hmm. stuff, the, the suffering and the um, challenges we face in our modern broken world. Um, It's actually living leaning into it and living it in the way Christ came incarnationally. And so we're invited to participate in that waiting and uh, in that recognition that this is not all there is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, until I, I got this by way of uh, Fleming Rutledge, mm-hmm. um, I had completely missed somehow um, the, the, the idea of Advent, being a matter of waiting for the second coming and not just pretending or imagining what it would be like to wait for the first coming of Christ. Right. Right. It's both. Um, and. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess to the extent that I ever had any experience with Advent growing up, it was either, you know, uh, as you said, the, the countdown to, to Christmas, which was something that's easily, easily secularized um, or, you know, the, the, the most spiritual we ever got was imagine what it would be like to be waiting for, you know, the baby Jesus to come, but never, never, ever made it until in the last five years to, well, also perhaps more importantly, waiting for, you know, the, the other advent. Mm -hmm. uh, Yeah. 
Me too. Me too. I don't think it, it hit me until about five, six years ago. Like, oh, this is what makes Advent real. This isn't just pretending. Like you said, it's yeah. not just us putting on the nativity scene, you know, and, and putting on a stage play and remembering what it must have been like to be in Bethlehem, although that is part of it. Um, uh-huh. And so when we we walk kind of alongside both stories, it helps, you know, we do remember what it was like to be waiting and waiting and waiting for a Messiah, feeling like God has forgotten um, mm. what he promised. And sometimes it feels that way now still, you know, we look sure. around us and we think, oh my gosh, can it, can things get any worse? I mean, they've been, we've been saying this for decades and decades um, that we remember. Um, yeah, we're still waiting <laughs> and, and <laughs> Christmas is not just going to suddenly, you know, paint everything great, even though there is that anticipation of, of waiting as well. And that can be incorporated, especially when you have younger kids, you know, just as an adult, we can remember, um, yeah, one day things will be made new and it will be just like how it feels when you're a kid and it's Christmas day and you're so excited yeah. and it, it all has come to fruition. Yeah. 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 Um, why is, why is the title of your book shadow and light? Well, historically, there's always been this idea of Advent being about waiting in the darkness for the light. You know, a lot of us know the tradition of lighting one candle a week, Mm -hmm. um, starting on the Sunday of that week. And, you know, so people have those Advent wreaths. And so we see ever increasing light. But there's also um, just this idea of the Shadowlands, that we are living in a broken world, but a world that does reflect God's truth, beauty, and goodness, and, and um, what we're meant for. And so, it's not completely all, you know, bad and wrong and full of evil that we see shadows of God's goodness everywhere, and that's reflected in the holiday season. And as we walk towards Christmas Day, we can lean into that idea of slowing down on purpose so that we recognize the dimness every day and how it's going away a little bit every day. And, you know, to me, that's one of the greatest gifts of Advent because ultimately the liturgical calendar is a gift. It's not a burden. You know, God's Mm -hmm. not keeping score and making sure we're doing it just right. That's not how this works. It's it's basically a scaffolding for time. It's a way for Mm -hmm. us to structure our time as humans who live in time to recognize a God who is outside of time and and so it just gives us permission to slow down, especially in a holiday that culturally feels very rushed and fraught with expectation, you know, of making it the best ever. And and so especially because it it is in tandem with the whole liturgical calendar, where December twenty fifth is actually the first day of Christmas, which is a twelve day holiday. If we choose to recognize that as well, then Advent can truly be much quieter and simpler and even a little darker on purpose. So it can play in, you know, it can juxtapose itself with the glory of Christmas that can be uh, truly a feast day and then a feast Mm -hmm. season for, for almost two weeks where there is light and, and, you know, delights of, of baked goods and movies and, and and all of that stuff, because we, we leaned into the, the shadows of Advent. Yeah. So is that how it works in your house? The, 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 it's pretty quiet, dark, slow before Christmas, and then you whoop it up for 12 days? Yes, but we're not purists because we live in the real world. So, you know, my, my kids, like I said, my oldest is almost 16 and then my youngest is 10. And so they understand a lot more than they did maybe 
six, seven years ago, which was much harder to explain why we were choosing to do things a little differently. Yet that doesn't mean that they're not still excited about Christmas. And if if we want to watch Elf, we're going to watch Elf. We're not going to be like, sorry, you can't till, you know. Um, and of course, the world around us is going to play Christmas carols, even though it's not yet Christmas. And there's going to, yeah. well, maybe not in 2020, but there are gatherings with other people and we are going to enjoy those. So sure. we do what we can within our home, but we're not, mm-hmm. we're not sticklers about it to where then it starts becoming a taskmaster. We, we let it serve us, not yeah. the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess um, for people who are, are who are serious about the uh, the liturgical calendar, it's frustrating that the radio stations stop playing Christmas music and Christmas <laughs> starts. That's right. Yeah. It's like, no, the holiday just began. And so, you know, I'm, I love adding music and art to, well, all things, but particularly the holidays. And so th- this is a reason why I created an accompanying playlist for this book. Because I wanted ah. to enjoy the music yet not get sick of it. Because, you know, a lot of us have had that experience of, well, I love Christmas music, but I've been hearing it since mid-October and I'm officially done. Mm-hmm. Where I try to incorporate more Advent theme, Advent-centric music instead of the Christmas carols beforehand. So that, yeah, the, the radio stations might be done by December 26th, 27th. But I'm not sick of them yet because I haven't been listening to them this whole time <laughs> ad nauseum. Yeah. 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 All right. I got to... I gotta, Unrelated question about Elf. <laughs> okay. Um, had you ever heard the word ginormous before you uh, saw the movie Elf? I don't remember. That's so funny. Did I use it? I, Is that why you asked? I no no. I, okay. I, was saying, I, I had never I'd never heard the word ginormous <laughs> until that movie, and it is now. I, I think my my kids don't know that it's a. They just thought that's a you know yeah a word people have always said. That's so funny. I, I mean, I, I guess it's a portmanteau, right? Of gigantic and enormous. And I'm so used to yeah. it. I Yeah. I mean, the fact that you even are asking that and I don't know, probably tells me no, <laughs> because <laughs> it's just normal, you know, a normal part of our vocabulary now. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I might have to look that up. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Now I, um, I always end these conversations with a question that I, I didn't warn you ahead of time. So hopefully you can, you can do this um, off the top of your head. Okay. Who are the writers who make you want to write? Oh my goodness. That's a great question. Cause I know exactly what that's like. Okay. The first one that comes to mind is Anthony Doerr. So Anthony Doerr uh-huh. wrote all the light we cannot see. That was probably his, yeah, that was his most recent book. He won the Pulitzer in 2014, I think. I had the honor of meeting him a few years ago. And once I read that, I read pretty much all his other stuff. And he's one of those writers that is so good. It makes you angry almost, you know, (laughs) those types that are like, but not really jealous because he's such a great, humble guy. And I love his work ethic and he's genuinely funny and he does not, I mean, he's so humble that there's not one since inch of bad will towards it, but it makes me angry because it's like, how can that much talent be in one human being? Um, he's just got such a way with words. He, he describes things exactly as they are. Like I read, so my book before shadow and light was at home in the world. And it was a travel memoir about a year. My family and I backpacked around the world and I was having trouble writing it. 
at one point. And then I was reading his book about the year he lived in Rome for a year called Four Seasons in Rome. And when I read it, I started realizing, oh my gosh, he is writing in the simple present tense, which we don't do very often. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, our default is past tense. And I realized, oh, this is making his book come alive. Because when you're writing about travel, if you keep writing about past tense, it starts feeling a little bit like someone's boring vacation slideshow. Like, and then we did this and then we did this. Don't you wish you were there? But present tense invites the reader to come with you, you know, Mm -hmm. to strap on their own backpack and and travel. And that's what he was doing with his simple short book about Rome. And so I rewrote the book in present tense and it was like, oh, there's the key. Like apparently this simple little thing. And I was just blown away by like, that's such a smart thing to do. And that's not easy to do. And that's a bit of a risk because that's just not the default. But anyway, Anthony Doerr, I, I am a huge fan of his work and I can't wait for something else to come out, but he's a very slow writer, which I also admire um, <laughs> in our industry these days of like constant yeah, right. publishing. I really admire his work ethic. Is that all you got? Just Anthony Doerr? Oh no, I've got tons more, but I didn't <laughs> I didn't want to bore you. Madeline the Engel comes to mind. I read A Wrinkle in Time when I was in fifth grade, sixth grade for the first time. And that, I remember reading that thinking, I want to create a story as magical as this that makes me feel like I'm living a dream. And then, you know, as an English teacher, probably John Steinbeck. I, I have one of my favorite things about having this job, this part-time job is that I get to read a lot of the classics that I think when you're assigned in high school, you don't appreciate quite as much. And then when you reread it as an adult, you realize, Oh my goodness, these writers are masters. And so he, I love his simplicity. I love how he um, says so much with so little. I admire writers that can do that. I admire writers who just say what they need to say and then stop and he, he just has a, a really great use of negative space and white space in his storytelling. And um, so he, he forces me to be a better writer because I think about that a lot. And, and I end up needing to cut a lot, uh, many more words than I then initially come out on the page just because I would love to write like him more. Yeah. So is your, de- is your default to, to write long, big sentences and then <laughs> come back? I mean, I like word, good word economy. I'm a fan of not being flowery. So I wouldn't call my writing necessarily flowery, but I'm definitely in the camp with probably most writers where my first drafts are really not very good. You know, um, I I tell my students a lot to remember horrible first drafts. It's okay. And so when I think of my horrible first drafts, yeah, they're, they're pretty wordy. I, I just have this thing about feeling like I need to really make sure the writer, the reader gets what I'm saying. And then when I cut back the words, it's, it's, out of respect for them, treating them like they're smart, you know, like, okay, you're Mm -hmm. a smart reader. I don't want to hand all of this to you because part of the the joy of reading is um, figuring it out for yourself as you read. So, so that's, that's what I want to do for my readers. Cause I like it when writers do that for me. Yeah, I know it's, it is, it is so fun to engage your judgment in reading. Uh And, And, you know, it's one thing I love about first person narrators is you're always judging, why is this person, I mean, just like we do in real life, why is this person telling this story? Um, Why are they telling it this way? You know, are they trying to, uh, in, in real life, when we hear stories, we are always, we have our, our, our judging in, you know, in for better or worse, we're always Mm -hmm. judging. And, and um, I love uh, writing that, that, that lets me keep that, 
that judging uh, faculty engaged. Yeah. You know, I'm taking a writing class right now and my teacher frequently talks about fiction being um, a vivid, continuous dream. Like when you're writing Mm -hmm. fiction, you're trying to trick the reader into thinking they're dreaming and that this is really happening to them. And when we do things like overwrite our story, we Mm -hmm. tend to wake them up or we tend to lull them out of that you know, that delightful dream. And, and so thinking of it like that, like where, if I'm making this about me by me, you know, like, I don't want to take out a sentence because I just like that sentence so much, but I can tell it doesn't need to be there. That becomes about me. And I'm not respecting my reader's need to be in the dreamlike state where she thinks this is happening to her. Um, And I thought that was a really great way to word it to where it makes me feel a little bit like, okay, I can cut my words. This, this is a gift to, to my reader. Yeah, and if, if your reader in the middle of a page says, boy, that Tish Oxenrider is a really good writer, then you've done something wrong. <laughs> exactly. You're spo- they're supposed to forget about you. You know, you don't want yeah. the reader in the midst of a book. You don't want them to be thinking about you at all. Um, yeah. So, yeah, good point. <laughs> well, Tish, thank you so much for taking a little time with me today. Yeah, and, thank you so uh, much. I. I'm looking forward to uh, celebrating Advent uh, uh, with Shadow and Light uh, this uh, this Advent season. Thank you so much. Me too, actually. So right there with you. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song Too Good as part of this podcast. Visit JessRayMusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash 